Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day. It is Wednesday. Today is the day the Lord has made. It's the 13th of November, 2019. Uh, I was reminded that um, after my attempted alliteration yesterday on Tasty Tuesday, which hopefully you helped people to taste and see that the Lord is good, hopefully you yourself tasted and experienced the Lord's goodness yesterday and broadcast it to others, shared it with others. Uh, I was reminded uh, after my little attempt at alliteration related to that, that Wednesday is regarded as wonderful. It's regarded as Wisdom Wednesday or Wednesday Wisdom is a very, very popular hashtag uh, on social media. And so maybe I'll just ask this question. What wisdom will you share today via social media? Uh, it's a, just a thought. Um and will it be godly? Will it be good? Those are, those are I think, questions that uh, I certainly seek to ask myself before I post anything on social media. The Friendsgiving hashtag is beginning to trend. Uh, Friendsgiving, you will remember, is sort of an adaptation of Thanksgiving. Lots of folks uh, are either unable to get to their families or, frankly, they want to spend some time giving thanks with their friends. And so Friendsgiving has become a trend across the country. And so at the intersection of it's Wednesday, and therefore there's some alliteration in a story related to Waffle House. Uh, So this is my Waffle House Wednesday Friendsgiving story. And I found it at inspiremore.com, and I expect that we will be hearing about it in many, many other places. It was just posted this morning. Uh, by Corinne Sanders, customers jump behind counter to help overwhelmed Waffle House employee. So everyone who has worked in the service industry has dealt with uh, angry customers or people who are impatient. But I want you to imagine for just a moment that you are the only person who showed up for work uh, in a Birmingham, Alabama Waffle House for the overnight shift. And so there are 30 hungry people this past Saturday when uh, Ben shows up for work and realizes uh, no one else is there to labor alongside him. So um, uh, Ethan Crispo happened to walk in to the establishment after having attended a friend's birthday party, and uh, he saw the face of uh, of this bewildered man who was trying to not only take orders but make the food and then deliver the food and then bust the tables and then uh, and then, you know, process the, the receipts and the payments. I mean, I, just imagine for just a moment. And then you got to wash the dishes so that you can keep up with the whole mess, right? Um, so just imagine for a moment that you are in that predicament. Well, Ethan Crispo saw uh, what he described as the cook's face, quote, a wash in bewilderment at a seemingly impossible challenge of serving everyone all by himself. And so Ethan got up from his table, put on an apron, and began to serve. He he simply uh, washed dishes. He bussed tables. 
he sort of let folks know what was going on and invited them to uh, be patient and um, and help where they could. And it just started then, uh, well, frankly, other people getting up and doing the same. So a woman who is who is pictured here in, let me just say, um, a different style of overnight clothes than the ones I wear. Uh, she has clearly uh, just gotten off of maybe her night shift, and she is serving the food to the tables. It became quite a community event, uh, and the man, was a Ben, was able to keep his job because he was actually able to keep the store open um, which is a job that he has to have in order to live. So there you go. What sort of kindness might you extend today? And and the moment, the moment that you think to yourself, well, that's not my business. It's not my business to jump in and do that. I want you to remember that it absolutely is your business because it's the father's business. Every square inch of it, every individual out there, every opportunity to serve, it's the father's business. And therefore, those of us who are in, in the family business of the father, it's our business too. And oh, by the way, John chapter 13. All right, we'll be right back with Peter Kapsner. He and I are going to survey some of the headline news of the day, bring the mind of Christ to bear. We'll be right back. walk-up music for Peter Kapsner. Welcome back, sir. Hey, great to be with you, Carmen. That's quite a deal to like show up at a restaurant one morning and be the only person there. I mean, that's, that's pretty hard. So, and it's the overnight like, shift. I don't know if Waffle House is a thing where you live, but Waffle House is, uh, is ubiquitous in the South. And is, um, there's, there's like a Waffle House at every, uh, at every interstate exit and in lots of places along the country roads. And so for there, for there to be 30 people at a Waffle House, uh, you know, at four in the morning or two in the morning or midnight is not unusual. And right. and yet to be the only Waffle House employee at that hour would be absolutely bewildering. I, I can't even imagine. I, I think I would have just turned in the apron at that moment <laughs> and walked out. I, you know, for that but, person to stand up and help, that is, that is absolutely remarkable. Well, and he then, he then inspired other people to help. Like other people right. then got up from their tables and helped. Like it, it became like a community thing. It's so cool. It's really actually a really cool story. Well, it is, okay. you know, and you and I cover enough negative things from time to time, just to some of the difficult stuff out there. And just to see, you know, that there there is so much goodwill left in people still. They just they, they need a bit of inspiration for it. And, and this is a great example of that. Absolutely. All right. So here's another inspiring story for you. And it's the one that you and I are going to lead off with today. So um, a few maybe it's two weeks ago now we um, we heard these these reports of this U.S. Special Forces mission that resulted in the death of Islamic State leader al-Baghdadi. Um, there was a service, menger, a service member injured, and that was a canine. So that was a dog uh, yep. who was injured, and, and that dog has since um, recovered um, and is back serving. But in the aftermath of that, there were um, mocked-up photos of that dog receiving a medal from the president, and they obviously had used a, a photo of a person receiving such an award and then you know, superimposed the dog in there. Um, but I believe that that may in part have led to what I am now going to read to you. So there are um, Animals in War and Peace Medal of Bravery. And the the 
in War and Peace Medal of Bravery is due to be awarded at this inaugural event, a reception and award ceremony, honoring eight unsung animal heroes, recognizing their accomplishments in both war and peace. It's a Congressional Medal of Bravery. Um, I just wanted to lift this up and talk about um, the ways in which we anthropomorphize animals and just remind us that it's important to keep some distinctions, even though this is a really warm and fuzzy story. (laughs) Yeah, I I think especially in light of Veterans Day just a couple of days ago to recognize that, um, you know, I can't crawl into the mind uh, of an animal. So I'm not entirely sure what's happening and what motivates certain kinds of behavior, whether it's purely instinct um, or, you know, whether we could use sort of human kinds of characteristics like bravery, like courage, um, you know, honor some of these kinds of ideas. It does seem that the further they go into studying animal communities and animal relationships, that perhaps there is more going on there, that it's not just purely an instinctual move. And and you combine that with the fact that, of course, I mean, who doesn't love their dog? I mean, I, people love their dogs more than they love just about anything else, it seems. In so many ways. And so you have a brave dog acting in this way or a brave set of animals. I, I don't think it's a, a huge leap to want to celebrate and, uh, you know, call things like bravery and honor. I do think we do need some level of distinction because there is in the Genesis one account, a, a distinctive, very good that is applied to the image bearers of God, that being male and female, <clears throat> the human beings that is different than the animal kingdom. So you know, I think we can both celebrate and, and use words like bravery while maybe recognizing that um, animals and human beings are not exactly on the, the, the same level. There's a, there's a stewardship required of human beings over the animal kingdom, not in a bossy lording over kind of way, but but to steward and shepherd the animals. So we don't want to put it on par, but I think we can kind of celebrate uh, what we saw there. All right, so the event um, takes place tomorrow night uh, in the Rayburn Building in Washington, D.C. Tickets are sold out, but we will watch for pictures, which I'm sure this is going to be a uh, a hotly covered event oh, by the media. Yes, for so, sure. There you go. For just sure. just going to highlight that. Okay, Peter and I are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about, um, uh, you know, if you want to make a friend, there's now an app for that. Maybe that will be my segue. If you want to make a friend... There is now an app for that. And if an app doesn't work for you, there are now people you can pay for platonic matchmaking. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Find me a find, catch me a catch. Night after night. Paul, nicely done there on the music. No problem. Good, Paul. That was very good. All right, so Peter, I have uh, I have this story in front of me, and actually, after I read this story, it didn't take me very long to um, to find out that this is actually a thing happening out there in the culture about which I did not know, and apparently, none of our listeners know because on the day that I made an appeal for how should I go about making. Uh, making a friend at this stage of life. No one, no one called and suggested that there was an app for that, nor that I could hire a platonic matchmaker. But come to find out, this is happening in the culture. Oh, I mean, I, I you know, there's so many different directions we can go with this one, Carmen. I mean, I, ah, boy, I think... I think about how awkward it is sometimes, you know, if you're in a married relationship and um, your your spouse is friends with uh, somebody and they're like, hey, we should get our spouses together. And, and and they're sort of playing a pseudo matchmaking role right there. And, you know, hardly ever has it been a situation where I just am thrilled to go out and meet somebody. It's awkward. Everybody thinks you should be a good match. And, and 
this friendship thing feels much the same way. You, you you get matched up with people that supposedly have the same passions and interests and desires in life, and you can pay somebody a lot of money to sort of get premium service to find uh, up to six matches for you to to make a friend. And, I, you know, I think it speaks to so much of what's <laughs> happening in terms of the ongoing fragmentation and isolation that people are experiencing. I know not more than a generation ago, your friends would be, pretty much related to who was in geographic proximity to you. And so the, the neighborhood friends, the idea is that you wouldn't go all that far outside of your community is very different than the bedroom communities of today, where oftentimes we're living 20, 30, 40, 50 miles from our work. Our, our work become our, our friendships as well. And we don't even hardly know our neighbors at this point. So it's different where it was easy to make friends, not or at least easier to make friends a generation ago, just simply because you were in proximity to people. I think that's one thing. And then parents who are listening right now, or even grandparents as well, that are involved in their kids' lives, know how absolutely frantic-paced life is compared to a generation ago, where you're putting your kids on the bus at 7, 7.30 in the morning. You may see them at home at around 4, 4.30 in the afternoon, throw some dinner on the table at best, or hit Chipotle or noodles or something along those lines, and off you go to activities. And you make some some common friends because of the common activities you're a part of, but those friendships usually end whenever the activity itself ends as well for your child. So people in their 40s and 50s and 60s are understandably experiencing a, a ton of loneliness because they haven't had that geographic proximity and they've maybe had a very busy, frantic-paced life. You slow down and realize, who do I actually know in life? And, and that's, I think, a pretty common experience that gives rise to this friendship app. Okay, so if you were to Google friendship apps, um, there's a lead article that sort of pops to the top, at least um, on mine, and it's, uh, uh, you know, because my Googler works different than your Googler. Um, but uh, Cosmopolitan has an article up, I mean, maybe not surprising that this is the source here, uh, 11 apps that will find you friends in no time because sometimes your social circle needs a little expansion. And they they highlight the top 11 friendship apps that they say are worth trying out. Um, if you go a little bit deeper into this process, you discover that many, many, many of these apps are simply adaptations of dating apps. But then yeah. there are a few of them that are like seriously based on friendship, uh, friendship qualities and like things that you're actually interested in, you know, versus what you look like and just swiping on somebody's picture and deciding whether or not you might want to be that person's friend because of what they look like, which is just creepy. Anyway, um, <laughs> So uh, so I just lift this up today because I do think that making friendships is complicated. It's complex. For whatever reason, we are not finding friends at church. We are yeah. not doing a good job finding friends, you know, after our kids have left the house. Like there are, it is challenging as life changes and as we become both more transient and um, more polarized in so many other ways. And so I just wanted to lift this up today. Uh, because we do talk about friendship a fair amount. We've had some guys on from Boyce College who actually have a course on Christian friendship. It's more historical than it is sort of, you know, contemporary application. But I wanted to have this conversation with you because this is a trend in the culture. And I figure you can do some some research there on campus uh, and, you know, and talk. Are people using this? By the way, as I was discussing this with my husband um, and I was looking at these apps, he's like, you're totally going to do that, aren't you? I'm like, <laughs> what? And he's like, oh, yeah, you're doing that. I'm like, so anyway, I will report back if I finally get brave enough to actually use use a friendship app to find a friend. You, 
Yeah, you need to do this, Grammy. You need to create an avatar of some kind and uh, and just you know do a little sociological experiment and see what you find. I think actually it would be quite fascinating to to get a little window into how people are thinking and what they're thinking about. And you mentioned church uh, as well as I referenced the geographic proximity and the busyness of life. And I, the, the church community is my life. You know, 25 years I've been involved in different church ministries and church organizations, and I absolutely love the church. I think another thing that we're swimming upstream on, though, is the current trend over the last 10 years of churches to focus more on sort of an invitational seeker worship experience and, and people feeling comfortable at church and, uh, and, and wanting you know, a pretty big show. Uh, not, I don't want to call it entertainment. That gets overused. But I do know that when you have a church service that's an hour long and uh, they have a countdown clock on YouTube and then the lights go out and the spotlight shines on the worship leader and the, the worship goes for 30 minutes and then the speaker comes on for about 30 minutes and you go home, there's not a lot of interaction in that time. And I think that as, as powerful as some of those services can be, they do mitigate against the ability to simply just have coffee and and find friends and be part of a community together. So I think there's some things going on in church that maybe church, churches can expand what they're doing and how they're doing it to help us walk in Christian community together. Okay, so do we have time to talk about dopamine fasting? We can do it quickly, I think. Okay, so um, it's basically my understanding that the folks in Silicon Valley are recognizing that because of all the time that we spend in front of screens doing the things that they have designed for us to do, um, we have these dopamine levels that are not not natural and not healthy, and so they are fasting from lots of things that generally um, stimulate dopamine in our system. So tell us about this. Yeah, it's pretty interesting phenomenon going on because dopamine is a hormone that gets a chemical that gets released that creates pleasure and, and a sense of enjoyment in our brains. And if you've ever felt flat, and I know that I go through weeks where I feel flat, and I know that my students talk about just feeling flat and a bit emotionless and passionless, it's because we're over-engaged too often in media uh, of different kinds, whether it's our phone, whether it's Netflix, uh, any kind of screen opportunity like that. And what it does is it ends up depleting us of having rightly ordered responses to situations of pleasure and motivation because we're just so inundated with all kinds of data and experience and information. So a technology fast or a, a dopamine fast is simply to try to eliminate those factors. It's not all that different than an eating fast to maybe cleanse your system a little bit. And uh, people report after they take some time away from screens, after they take some time away even from some human interaction kinds of things, that their workspace together, their life together, their experience of the day, it's filled with a kind of joy that if you just keep plowing through life, you don't often experience. So it's a pretty interesting phenomenon. One more piece of that is my wife Hallie sent me an article here a couple of days ago talking that some of the key people within Silicon Valley, even as much as Melinda Gates and Bill Gates, they don't have phones in their homes. They don't allow their kids to use phones. They sit and read books and play games. Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, the, these big names in Silicon Valley, they see the impact that technology is having, and they don't actually allow the people around them or their kids to use the stuff because of what it does in terms of wreaking havoc on sort of the pleasure and motivation centers of our brain. Okay, so for those of you who are listening and you're looking for some cultural touch points in this particular conversation, I offer up Veggie Tales, the pirates who don't do anything. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> and then it also, as you were describing being flat, you know what came to mind, Peter, was Flat Stanley. Do you remember Flat Stanley? I don't. So, was that a kid's okay, show so, as well? 
Well, no, it's not a kid's show, but Flat Stanley is this, like, little uh, – he's flat. He's a two-dimensional picture, and you would take him on your trips, and you would photograph oh, that right. Flat Stanley in all these places, right? And that would be, like, the way that you would chronicle what you had done. Well, maybe the reason Flat Stanley was so flat is because he was <laughs> overindulging and overengaged in so much travel and food and all these other things. Maybe maybe Flat Stanley was flat for a reason. There he he could know. have become a real boy almost if he had just it, done this, uh, this dope fast. Had, Phenomenal. Had a dopamine fast. There you go. All right. So fasting <laughs> is um, is important. And in fact, there's an app for that. All right. So I'm going to leave that part right there. Tell us about uh, quickly about the Till podcast that people can look forward to starting next week. Yeah, you and I and uh, Nat Becker, producer, uh, we did our first show last night where you and I can kind of dig into, as it were, to till, to dig into the cultural soil a bit and really explore some of these issues more in depth. It was delightful to do it with you and Nat last night. But don't look for it yet because it doesn't post for another week. So, But next week, we're going to tell you exactly where to find it. But it's going to be called The Till Podcast with Peter Kapsner and Carmen LaBerge and Nat Becker. All right. We're going to leave it right there. Thanks, man. Have a great day at school. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Carmen. All right. We'll be right back. Well, I've never been the green one. Okay, so yesterday, the Supreme Court of the United States um, heard arguments in cases related to DACA. You will you will remember that this is the deferred action related to uh, those who arrived as children here in the United States. Uh, and so if you have an immigrant friend, if you are an immigrant, if you are a person, nearly, uh, nearly a million people in the nation right now grew up here, came here as children, and their status here in the United States has been protected under DACA. Well, DACA, you know, technically is an executive order that could lapse or expire. And that's what the Trump administration is arguing should happen in order to press Congress into real immigration reform, comprehensive immigration reform. That case is before the U.S. Supreme Court, and they heard arguments related to it yesterday. Um, why are we talking about this? Because we are talking about our neighbors. We are talking about um, people who have lived here a long period of time, uh, who have been educated here, have jobs, uh, are raising families, and yet they are not citizens of our country. And so um, it's a conversation that is, that's important if you know an immigrant. And if you don't know an immigrant, there's a question maybe you know to ask yourself as well. Why don't I have any immigrants in my friendship circle? All right, I'm going to have this conversation next with Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University. We're also going to talk about a federal judge halting the Trump administration's conscience protection for those in the medical industry who or medical profession who don't want to perform abortions or participate in gender reassignment surgeries. Um, and so that, that should be an interesting conversation as well. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Did you know that being grateful can be good for your health and well-being? Recent studies have shown that people who practice gratitude have less stress, more joy, and they're more resilient. Hi, I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. Here's the most interesting finding from these studies. Being grateful can make you feel more compassionate and generous. It's not surprising, actually, when you think about this Bible verse. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You know, I think the hardest time to be grateful is when things aren't going your way. But it can make a big difference in your attitude. Maybe your car's in the shop and you have to take the bus to get to work. Instead of focusing on the expensive repairs, think about the new people you'll meet on your commute. Maybe God has a divine appointment lined up for you. Be grateful for this gift. So live a life filled with gratitude. It will help you be more content, confident, and generous. 
Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University helps us to you know, survey what's happening um, in our nation and around the world, applying the mind of Christ to the matters of the day. And so, Hunter, welcome back. Carmen LaBerge, happy to be with you. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. So um, when we look at what is happening in Washington, D.C., sometimes we're talking about what's happening on Capitol Hill. Sometimes we're talking about what's happening through the executive branch, particularly at the White House and the agencies of the executive branch. Today, we're going to focus in a little bit on what is happening at the U.S. Supreme Court. And so yesterday, the um, the justices heard arguments, I think is the language that we're supposed to use here, related to DACA, deferred, um, deferred action related to childhood arrivals. And so um, tell us what where you think we are today on this subject. Obviously, they have not rendered a decision yet, but it does seem as if they're leaning in a particular direction. Uh, yeah. Um, so we're talking about this this whole issue of the, uh, you know, the quote unquote dreamers, um, the children who were brought here without any uh, choice of their own uh, to the United States illegally and, and sort of what is their fate Uh and is the court leaning a particular way? Sometimes we think that based on listening to the oral argument, but uh, that is often misleading. Uh, <clears throat> you know, this the the thing here is is that in terms of the substance, we're talking about an executive order issued by Barack Obama. Um, executive orders are not legislation. And uh, so one president can offer an executive order. Another president can come right behind them and repeal it. Uh, typically, that that happens all the time. Republicans and Democrats go back and forth on some of the executive orders, uh, such as the uh, funding of abortions um, internationally, uh, as with foreign aid, things like that. So the question is uh, – is it just straightforward that Donald Trump can repeal DACA from Obama, or is there some sort of uh, process consideration? In the substance, Donald Trump is clearly correct. He can do it. Uh, so it's entirely a question of process and um, you know whether adequate notice has been given to allow these people to deal with the circumstances, things like that. Um, it, In my mind, it should be a fairly easy case for the court to say uh, – to say that Donald Trump's repeal of Obama's executive order stands, but we'll see. So I think that when we start talking about um, stories related to to immigration and the need for comprehensive immigration reform in this country, recognizing that absolutely we need secure borders, but we also need um, we need a way to uh, to deal with the reality of people who are already here, particularly those who have lived here most of their lives. This is the only country that they know. This is the only language that they know. This is where they've been educated, and this is where they're contributing their talents, gifts, and abilities. Um, I, I, I wonder to myself, Hunter, you know, just as an average person out here in the country, this this really makes it feel like the system is broken. This This part of the process makes it feel to me like the system is broken. Yeah, I mean it's really complicated. The the problem is is that is that historically the US border with Mexico uh and with Canada is really pretty porous, right? You know, people right. people go back and forth and uh and it's always kind of been that way. Um 
and uh, you know, uh, it it has become a focus of of intense concern for voters, and and I understand why. I mean, you know, ever since nine eleven, there are there are tremendous concerns about possible terrorist actions and ways that people could enter into the country. Um, but it, it is extremely difficult to regulate a border of that size. Um, you know, you can, you can build walls at some places which are, uh, common points of passage, but, but it is really, a, a, a difficult challenge. And, um, you know, I, it, it, it does make sense to try and accommodate these children uh, because to some extent they're kind of uh, victims of a change in our historical practice. Um, I have I have always said, <clears throat> I said this in my congressional run. This this may be part of why I did not get elected. Um, that that we should simply have an easy guest worker program. Um, you know, about as difficult as getting a passport, um, where Mexican citizens can can easily. Uh, do the appropriate paperwork and then come over. They're documented, uh, and then they can go back whenever they want to. They pay taxes. We know who they are, um, but that is not the direction of our policy. Yeah, so I just think it's, it is absolutely a case that is going to be burning up the headlines, and so folks need to be, um, you know, we need to be thinking about. There's lots of people in organizations, schools, businesses, institutions, churches of all kinds who are weighing in on this DACA conversation. And so I think we as Christians need to be prepared, um, you know, not just well-informed, but actually prepared to, to talk about what does it, you know, what does it look like for me to be neighbor um, to someone who was born in another country, but uh, has lived lived here now most of their whole life. Okay, um, we also what, have an Carmen, action. Carmen, yeah, Carmen, yeah. wait. Yeah. So let me just say, I mean, so you're yeah. asking what should people do? People should push for a policy that actually makes sense. I mean, you know, so what should we do? It's not so Congress. simple as this is this yeah, is push and Congress. Not, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's not yeah. so simple as you know. Well, what side are we on? Right. Uh, you know, are you are you on the control immigration side or on you on the immigrant side? The question is, how can we actually have a workable policy? The thing that is so dismaying to me is that I just don't see that. I don't see anybody trying to do a workable policy that makes sense given the history of that border. Mm. Okay, if you're listening right now and you know somebody that is uh, that is working on that and doing so in a way that uh, makes sense, um, I think both Hunter and I would like to know about it, uh, right? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Amen. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, another action in a court. This is where a federal judge has halted the Trump administration's conscience protection rule um, halting the administration's um, efforts related to healthcare professionals um, who have, you know, a, a religious or other moral objection to things like abortion and or gender reassignment surgery, uh, and and so we're going to talk about where we are in terms of the forcing of the conscience of medical professionals related to these things that they find religiously or morally reprehensible. We'll be right back. So I want you to imagine for a moment that you work in the uh, somewhere in healthcare at some layer in some way uh, in some in some role in healthcare, and um, the government says you do not uh, have the freedom of your conscience 
related to something like abortion uh, or participating in the performance of an abortion, or you do not have the freedom of your own conscience in relationship to participating in the removal of an otherwise healthy organ like a womb from a woman who is gender dysphoric and perceives herself to be a man. Um, so protecting the conscience of healthcare workers, uh, people in, in working in all levels of the healthcare uh, world, is something that the, con- uh, the Trump administration put into place. That conscience protection rule for healthcare professionals has been struck down by a U.S. district court judge. Um, Hunter, reflect on this from a from a conscience angle, from a freedom angle, whatever angle you want to take. Well, it's uh, it's really near and dear to me. Um, <clears throat> I am married to a physician. My wife is an OBGYN. Um, she is pro-life. Uh, her, um, you know, I, I remember when she was in residency back in the late 90s uh, in Houston and uh, in her training, they required her to go and spend a couple of weeks at Planned Parenthood uh, as part of one of her rotations. And uh, she flatly refused. You know, she said, uh, you know, there there's nothing that I can learn in particular from doing abortions. There is a procedure, a DNC, uh, that's effectively the same. Uh, and my conscience is against it. And uh, so they did not make her go, but they did assign her punitive call hours uh, in consequence. <clears throat> and I remember at the time thinking that that was really wrong. Uh, I continue, continue to think so. Uh, but this is one of the problems that we have, right? Is that, um, is that as the government does more and more things, uh, the more it touches, um, the more, um, certain ideological issues come into play. Uh, and, and you, you know, kind of people out of their own, uh, their own view of what is right, they kind of want to force everybody to do the same thing. But the problem is, is that you take something like abortion, forcing somebody to participate in something that they believe is effectively uh, an unjust killing uh, is uh, to do a tremendous violence to their conscience uh, uh, and, and very likely their faith as well. And I just think that if we want to live in peace together, uh, in a society, we should do everything we can to avoid putting people in that position. And I think that, you know, it's been maybe a couple of months ago now that we have the case of uh, you know, the ruling against a Catholic hospital saying, you know, a Catholic hospital can be sued if, uh, if, a, man, if a person presents as a man who is a biological female and requests that, uh, you know, her otherwise healthy female organs be removed. And that is expressly contrary to Catholic teaching. These are Catholic hospitals. And yet we essentially have the government saying, well, you don't have the right to operate as a Catholic hospital because the new prevailing normative thinking in our country is that if a person perceives themselves to be something different than they are, then, you know, you, you have to get on board with that. There's so many layers to that, Hunter, that I just feel like, you know, Christians built these hospitals. Christians ought to have a, a right to um, operate these hospitals in ways that are consistent with with Christian thought, with Christian yeah. convictions, um, and, and ought not be compelled by a culture that says, you have now become essentially a public institution because everyone has a right to health care in the you know, in the new thinking, and everybody has a right to health care wherever they want to receive it. 
Well, the problem is most of the hospitals across the country were built by Christians and paid for by Christians. And so now to say we're just simply going to let the government claim all of those institutions for whatever the uh, you know operational thought process of the day is, that's horrific to me. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and, you know, the problem is, is that if you extend this logic far enough, uh, you can get to a point where Christians can be just ruled out entirely from certain professions uh, as well as certain activities. Um, and you know, have our institutions been, taken over. Uh, totally. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Uh, and, and certainly, certainly we have uh, we have seen in the in the adoption and foster care area uh, that organizations that had previously um, operated in that area and very effectively, um, you know, some places in the, in the northeast and, and out west get forced out entirely. Uh, and I'm and I kind of ask myself, are we actually better off? Right. I mean, so uh, so maybe you have uh, vindicated your sense of justice, but actually that now there are less children being helped. Right. You know, <laughs> less placements being made. Uh, you know, we we should be able to find a way uh, to accommodate these differences. I mean, that that's really one of the signature achievements of the U.S. Uh, is religious freedom uh, and protection of conscience. This is part of why so many people came here, um, especially during the uh, during the uh, 20th century. And, you know, we run the risk of betraying that promise by uh, trying to kind of uh, impose this, as you say, the operational thought of the day on people heedless of the consequences in individual lives and and the effect on organizations. Absolutely. Okay, you have a piece posted that I want to make people aware of. Um, you've got a piece posted at the Acton blogs. Should social media companies be treated like publishers and broadcasters? Um, when we think about social media uh, I think we think it's free and we control it, but it's not really free and we don't control it. Um, and so talk talk with us briefly here about this distinction between publishers and broadcasters and these platforms that we're all using, <clears throat> many of us using them without really understanding the um, the market that is behind it, the business model behind it. Yeah, well, there you know, there's, there are two different concerns. I mean, one is what do they do with your data? That's one. Um, now, you know, typically I think, well, you're participating in this in this service for free. Uh, and so you, you might expect that that they're going to find a way to make money off of you. But but there are tremendous concerns as to how one's data is used in a commercial sense. But then there's this other thing um, about whether they should be treated as publishers of, say, newspapers or broadcasters of news. And uh, what I was writing about is that that I think they absolutely should not. Um, Facebook, uh, Twitter, these these platforms empower ordinary people, people who do not possess printing presses and studios, uh, to express their opinions, to uh, to spread them more broadly than their immediate network of friends. Uh, and I think it's very positive for democracy in that sense. And and people say, yeah, but people publish false stuff. The answer to that is not to is not to try to force Facebook or Twitter to censor people. The answer to that is uh, is essentially more speech, right? I mean, bad speech should be countered with good speech, uh, not censorship. And so that's what I was trying to get across is that is that I think that if we want to try to say that 
that Facebook needs to treat Hunter Baker as though he is an author who works at Facebook uh, is totally impractical, impractical uh, and violates real restriction of people's ability to speak. So appreciate your clarity of thinking and the the subject matter across which you are thinking. So thank you again so much. He is Hunter Baker. You can find him at Hunter Baker pretty much everywhere. You can also find what he has written on this particular topic at the Acton blog. You can find that at blog.acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. We'll be right back. Okay, uh, next up in the next hour, we are, uh, we're going to be talking Wednesday wisdom. I'm going to lead off with a conversation about wisdom. And then Bill English will be back. Uh, it, maybe you are already signed up for Disney+. Plus. Maybe you don't know anything about Disney+, Plus, but you know something about Disney. Or you're paying for some kind of streaming service. I really wanted to have a conversation about this business model, um, about my fatigue and being asked to pay for things in terms of just being allowed to have access. I mean, football games, I don't feel like I should have to pay extra to watch football games, like, right? I don't know. I feel like that should be in my package. So there you go. We're going to talk about all that kind of stuff. Home economics up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.